so chapter 23. Things are switched around on my pages or something. Let's ask the Lord for his blessings. Our Father, we come before you and, and we give you thanks for your son and, and what he has done for us. Uh, redemption, the salvation that he's brought to us. I do also look to you for your help this morning. The truth that is within your word is a blessing for us, an encouragement to build us up. We pray that you would open our understanding to take in uh, to take in the truth from your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. So, Last time we went through chapter 22, and I shared with you what I saw in there, how the Lord took the Passover and brought it to brought it to a conclusion. So the, the Passover is set aside for the time being, and, and if you you want to have fellowship with the Lord, it's in a different, whole different style of feast, a feast that we normally call breaking of bread. But He is no longer uh, the Passover is no longer a feast of the Lord a time where the Jews would gather together and feast before the Lord, with the Lord, in fellowship. He would no longer be take, partaking of the Passover until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And it was interesting, yesterday I was listening to a Messianic Jew, and he was talking about, uh, he was talking about the Sabbath, but then he related it to the Passover, and talking about whether Christians should keep the Sabbath and the Passover, or observe it, or whatever. And he made an interesting point. He said that you can't keep the Passover, According to what the law wrote, you can't keep the Sabbath according to what the law wrote because the law uh, commands you to bring certain sacrifices to the temple and offer them up for the Lord in both of those cases. And that can't be done today, obviously. So you can't keep it according to the law. That's impossible. Uh, and then he went on to say that it was okay or beneficial then to observe it in some way or remember it as best we can. And uh, it was interesting to me then to look at this passage and see that the Lord is saying, I'm not going to eat of it. I mean, if you want to eat of the Passover, fine, whatever, but I'm not going to be with you in that feast. It's, I will no longer eat of it until I come to the kingdom of God. So there was a big change that was coming. It's, it's, to me, it's so incredible that, that Jesus could bring about this change. Because you remember when the Passover was established, that there had been ten major plagues, and there had been a whole army that had been drowned in the sea, and there had been thunder and lightning on top of a mountain, and earthquakes, and great warnings that nobody should come up. I mean, it was, and a voice came from the mountain and established all of these different things that would establish then the Passover and all the laws and regulations with that. And now you've got in one quiet room, hidden away where nobody can see, they are up in an upper room where the enemies of the Lord won't find them, and they're observing the Passover in a quiet little space, and there, this one man with one simple word brings an end to all of that and initiates something new. Quite incredible. It is, I think, a uh, great sign of his divinity that he is who he said he is. Uh, with that, I noticed that as he... Uh, as the passage went on, he began to show them that this new era that he was bringing them into was going to be quite different than the previous era. Under the law, if they kept the law, God would bless them, and they would be 
they would conquer their enemies, they would be in safety and security, their, their flocks would increase and so forth. Now in this new era, he says, you may be following me as closely as possible. <coughs> you are going to find that when your enemies come up against you, God will not necessarily intervene on your behalf and deliver you from your enemies. He may stand back, so to speak, from all appearances, and you may go into hard times of persecution and even death, and God will not lift a finger to deliver you from that persecution or death. And we have the uh, example of him going to the Garden of Gethsemane and how the anguish that he felt is described there for us and, and how God sent to him an angel to strengthen him. But even with that, he swept great drops of blood. This is a new era where God... Uh, <clears throat> in the old era, you could tell if you were following God, if God came and delivered you from your times of trouble. This new era, if God doesn't deliver you, it's not a sign that he doesn't, that he's not with you, that he isn't there to strengthen you. The outward appearance would no longer be an indication of whether God was with you or not. And so we see the example then of, of the Lord being abandoned, so to speak, by God. There was, what I mean by that is that there was no physical evidence that you could see with your, or sense with your senses that God was with him. You could not tell that God was with him. And we see Peter, too, as he went into that little situation where they started asking him the questions. After he had denied the Lord, then the Lord looked at him, and then he remembered everything. Why didn't the Lord look at him before why did the Lord allow him to go through that? But that's the way it would be, is that we would be allowed to go into trials and it would be difficult. Now, he's going to give us a little glimpse of the Jews, what would happen to the people of God, who were, the people who were formerly the people of God. As he wrapped up chapter 23, we've got this little story here, a little sequence uh, verse 66, as soon, it was, as soon as it was day, the elders of the people, both chief priests and scribes, came together and led him into their council, saying, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will by no means believe. And if I also ask you, you will by no means answer me or let me go. In other words, what he's saying is, you will completely disregard everything I say. <clears throat> it doesn't matter what kind of argument I present before you. You are going to hold fast to your own view of what the reality is. And he quotes a verse. He says, hereafter, this is from uh, Daniel, hereafter the Son of Man will sit on the right hand of the power of God. And it's a verse that talks about the Son of Man coming in the clouds and sits on the side on the, on the right hand of the ancient days. <clears throat> this that the Lord spoke was the truth. It was the reality. This would be and they all said, are you then the son of God? This, I find it interesting that he said, son of man. And they ask him, are you the son of God? But he answers them and says, you, you rightly say that I am. This, that is true. That is what things are. And it was true. It was absolutely true. He was the son of God. He was the son of man. <coughs> and notice their blindness. <coughs> they said, what further testimony do we need? For we have heard it from ourselves from his own mouth. They said he blasphemed. This is an absolute lie. It wasn't a lie. It was true. 
Why couldn't they see it? It wasn't like somebody had come up to them, some man had come up to them and said, you know what, Jesus is the Son of God. Or it wasn't like an angel came up to them and said, you need to pay attention that Jesus of Nazareth is the Son of God. It was the Son of God himself who came and told them, I am the Son of God, so to speak. (coughs) And they didn't see it. Why didn't they see it? And it's not hard to figure out why. They hated him. And as we went through Luke, we saw why they hated him. He constantly was exposing their sin. They, whenever he was around talking to them, they began to see that they weren't as righteous as what they liked to pretend that they were or make out that they were. He had a way of speaking the word of truth that convicted them. And instead of submitting to the word, They hated him for it. They hated being exposed. Their hatred blinded them to what the truth was. They hated him so much that there was no way in their mind that this guy could be the Messiah. As I thought about that, I realized that there are times that we as people can lose track of what reality is because of our feelings. Now these guys, they had feelings of hatred and they completely blinded them to what the reality is. Sometimes we can have feelings of uh, sometimes of pride or sometimes, you know, just different feelings that aren't based on reality, feelings of what we're... Uh, sometimes we get some... <clears throat> Feelings of what we think God should be like or what God is like. Uh, we even see today in the churches today where people, their whole worship service is designed to stir up feelings. But if feelings are going to lead us, they're going to blind us to what reality is. Particularly in this era where you can't sense God with our, with our five senses, our feelings can lead us astray, and their feelings led them astray. It wasn't that the truth was so hidden that they couldn't see it, it was impossible for them to see, because you'll see in chapter 23 that the whole multitude of them arose and led them to Pilate, and they began to accuse him, saying, we found this fellow perverting the nation, forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ, the king. <clears throat> Pilate asked him, saying, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him and said, it is as you say. So Pilate said to the chief priests in the crowd, I find no fault in this man. But they were the more fierce, saying, he stirs up the people, teaching throughout Judea, beginning from Galilee to this place. You notice Pilate. He could see that this man was not guilty of crime, that he was not a criminal, that he was not a deceiver. He was a Gentile. What did he know about the things of God or about the Messiah or about the Son of God? Nothing. He knew none of that stuff. But even he could see this man was not guilty of any crime. It's not that the truth was hidden. It was that their feelings, their hatred was so strong, it blinded them to the truth. It is a warning to us to beware. I think John Heller liked to say that Feelings make great foot soldiers, but they make lousy generals. And what he's trying to get at is that if you're going to follow your feelings, 
and use that to guide you in your spiritual life, they will blind you to what the truth is. You'll end up someplace that is outside the realm of you. You'll end up disconnected to what is really true. Now, when Pilate heard of Galilee, he asked if the man were Galilean, and as soon as he knew that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent them to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at that time. Now, when Herod saw Jesus, he was exceedingly glad, or we might say he was excited, for he had desired for a long time to see him, because he had heard many things about him and hoped to see some miracle done by him. And then he questioned him with many words, but he answered him nothing. And the chief priest stood and vehemently accused him, and Herod, with his men of war, treated him with contempt, mocked him, arrayed him with a gorgeous robe, sent him back to Pilate. <clears throat> Herod is an interesting case. He's popped up a couple times before in the, in the Gospel of Luke. And it's been noted before in the Gospel of Luke that he wanted to see Jesus. He would have granted Jesus an audience to come and show off his powers. <coughs> to Herod, Jesus was a man who could do supernatural things, had incredible powers, incredible abilities. Herod had his ideas of what God was like. Jesus didn't fit any of those ideas. To Herod, Jesus was a man who had supernatural powers. Herod didn't realize and Jesus was a supernatural God and became a man. It's not surprising that Jesus didn't say anything to Herod. Herod wanted to see Jesus show off his power. Jesus wouldn't even speak to him. Remember, Herod was the one sitting on his throne. He was asking the question, "Who? what is about this man? I've heard about him. And that was the passage where Jesus asked the disciples, what do crowds say about me? And both Herod and the crowds were saying the same thing. Well, maybe he was raised from the dead. Maybe and Herod was like, well, he must be John the Baptist raised from the dead. And some people were saying, well, maybe it was a prophet that came back from the dead. And Jesus turned to his disciples and he said, well, what have you been telling the crowds? And they said, well, we've been telling them that you're the Christ. You're the Messiah. Why didn't they believe that Jesus was the Messiah? Why did they prefer to believe that Jesus was a prophet raised from the dead or Herod to say, well, somehow his head has become reattached to his body? Remember, John was beheaded and his head went one direction and his body went another. <coughs> Herod said, well, he's somehow become reattached. He's come back. Herod had heard the report that he was the Messiah. He must have. But he didn't listen to the word of Jesus. no. He'd rather believe something else. So if he won't listen to the word of Jesus, then it's no wonder Jesus wouldn't speak to him anymore. Well, I speak to you. You will neither listen to me, not let me go. My word means nothing to you. And so Herod scorned him. They treated him with contempt and sent him back to Pilate. So Luke draws for us a caricature, a portrait of these people who have rejected the Lord. The Jews who were blinded by their their emotions, their hatred. They could not see the truth. And Herod, who had his own idea of what the truth was, and when the truth came to him, he said, you fit in my idea or I will treat you with contempt. 
<coughs> now we are going to see <coughs> something that seems to contradict the sovereignty of God. But it doesn't. Watch in this next part here from verse 13 on 25. Watch how the people force their will that it would be done. Then Pilate, when he had called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people, he said to them, You have brought this man to me as one who misleads the people. And indeed, having examined him in your presence, I found no fault in this man concerning those things which you accuse him. <laughs> no, neither did Herod, for I sent you back to him. And indeed, nothing deserving of death was done by him. I will therefore chastise him and release him, for it was necessary for him to release one to them at the feast. So Pilate is like the law. He is the law of the land. He is the top judge that has been set up by Rome to establish justice, to make sure that the law is conformed. The law is very black and white. This is right, this is wrong. You do wrong, you punish, you do right, and you, you live your life the way you want to. And the law... Pilate, having looked at the man, he said, look, he has not done anything wrong. This law is not something that is uh, that can transform or it's, it's changeable. It's, it is what it is. It's, it's as close to what we have of truth as can be. Right and wrong, the way things are. It's like math. It plus and minus. You've got your numbers. They don't change. It's not like the English language, which has all these rules that are all meant to be broken. And sometimes they apply and sometimes they don't. I after E except for after C and then a couple other occasional words that doesn't fit with either. I mean, science disproves the I after E thing. Except after C. Right? S-C-I-E-N-C-E. -E. The law is not like English. The law is like the way things are. And the law took a look at Jesus and said he has no guilt. And they would not be persuaded. They all cried out at once, saying, Away with this man! Release to us Barabbas! Who had been thrown into prison for a certain rebellion made in the city, and for murder. Then he said, then, uh, verse 20, Pilate, therefore wishing to release Jesus, again called out to them. But they shouted, saying, Crucify him! Crucify him! And he said to them the third time, Why? What evil has he done? I have found no reason for death in him. I will therefore chastise him and let him go. It was very unusual for a Roman to say this. They were more than happy to crucify the Jews. Give them any kind of excuse. They'll start crucifying Jews up and down the road. And Pilate's like, no, let's not crucify this one. <clears throat> but they were insistent, demanding with loud voices that he be crucified. And the voices of these men and of the chief priests prevailed. And so Pilate gave sentence that it should be as they requested. And he released to them the one they requested, who for rebellion and murder had been thrown into prison. But he delivered Jesus to their will. From here on out, their will will be done. How does this fit into the 
How does this fit into the sovereignty of God where these people are going to do their will, not God's will, and God is going to step back and let them do it? So this is what they do. Verse 26 says, They led him away. They laid hold of a certain man, Simon a Cyrenian, who was coming from the country, and on him they laid the cross that he might bear it after Jesus. And a great multitude of the people followed him, and women who also mourned and lamented him. Yeah, you can see why they were mourning. Everything was going bad. Jesus did not deserve to die. Even the law established that the ruler of the land said that he didn't deserve to die. And these women knew he didn't deserve to die. And yet he was going to die. Not just beheaded, but he was going to be crucified. According to their will. Being driven by their hatred. And so the women mourned and lamented him. But Jesus, turning to them, said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For indeed the days are coming in which they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore, and the breasts which never nursed. And they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, Cover us. For if they do these things in the greenwood, what will be done in the dry? It's such an odd statement. Because it's their will that's being done. But he speaks of a time that is yet to come. Some future time. Like he can see what would happen in the future. So whose will is being done here? I mean, how does this work where their will is being done on the one who can see into the future? Like how, how is it that he came to be under their will if he can see in the future? There were also two others, criminals, led with him to be put to death. And when they had come to the place called Calvary, there they crucified him, and the criminals, one on his right hand and the other on the left. You take criminals and crucify them. You, you have a man who is functioning in society, and he's allowed to live and do whatever he wants to do, as long as he doesn't break the law. But when he breaks the law, you remove his right to function in society. And you place them either in confinement or under some work, or if the crime is great enough, you remove his right to live. Every human has right to live, unless they reach a point in their, their sin, their wickedness, that you deny them the right to live and you execute them. They are the lowest of the low. They are, they've lost all rights as human as a human being, and they are rejected by society, and they are slated for execution. They lose the right to live. That's what happens. That's what happened to these men. There they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right hand and the other on the left. So he's the lowest place. Then <coughs> Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. Now, you, you, you don't take, let's say you've got some beggar on the side of the street and you've got the governor walking by and somebody walks up to the beggar and they kick him or whatever because he's kind of a jerk and he stinks and you know, they shove him into the alley or throw him into, why don't they just pick him up and toss him into the trash can and the beggar sticks his head out of the can and he says, Mr. Governor, you just got to forgive these people because uh, they don't really understand what they're doing. 
No, the beggar doesn't have, he's down below the people that are shoving around. He doesn't have the right to speak up to the governor. He would appeal to the governor and says, hey, governor, I'm being mistreated here. Can you, you know, how, the only way you can ask for forgiveness for somebody else is if you're close to the one that you're asking forgiveness from. Like if you've got a kid that's being pushed around on a school playground and all of a sudden a principal comes storming out, he's going to really wreak havoc on the playground and beat up them bullies. And the kid says, no, no, wait a minute, Dad. Just forgive him this time. He can do that because he's the principal's son. I mean, he's, they didn't, bullies didn't, maybe they did realize that, maybe they didn't, I don't know. But you can ask for forgiveness for somebody else if you're close to the one for whom you're asking for. You're not... It's, it seems so contradictory because here he is on the cross. He's lost, as far as the, so the rulers are concerned, he's lost all right to them. They're going to take that right away from him. He's down. They push him down to the bottom. He's being crucified. And here he is asking for forgiveness as if he has got a direct link right to the Father. The whole situation is paradoxical. That's even a word. <laughs> it's a paradox. Whose will is being done here? Is it theirs or his? And they divided his garments and cast lots. This is what they did. We're going back to their will, what they do. They divided his garments and cast lots. The people stood looking on. But even the rulers with them sneered, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ, the chosen of God. And hear the hatred coming out through their words. And the soldiers also mocked him, coming and offering him sour wine and saying, If you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. And an inscription was also written over him in letters of Greek and Latin and Hebrew. This is the king of the Jews. It states it in black and white. This is what the law found. This is the king of the Jews. And they mocked him. And one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him, saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation? We indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. To all appearances, those three guys were going to die on the cross together, and they were going to be thrown in the same burnt heap pile together. Yet, maybe they were just me. Maybe they were being justly crucified. Maybe they weren't. What difference did it make? They were all dying on the cross. But this criminal says, look, this isn't the end. We die on the cross, and tomorrow we face God. And what are you going to say to God? You've railed on this man, and I've railed on this man. And we stand there before God, and he starts reciting our crimes. They start coming out before us, and we have to answer for every one of our crimes. Are you going to add to your crimes, railing on this man who has done nothing wrong? He's dying like we are. We all have to give account to God. This man's done nothing wrong. 
Do you think that we are dying and this is it? Don't you fear God? Don't you see we, we have to give account to him? And he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Such strong words, such confident words, such words of security from someone who is hanging on a cross upon whom the people have done their will, everything that they've wanted to do, they have done to him, and he has not prevented them in any of it. A little hard to prevent people from doing anything when you're all nailed to a cross. It's Being nailed to a cross is a really helpless position. We, uh, I was reading a story one time about these two boys, they like to tie each other in knots. They would learn, they get their ropes out and they would tie, the, tie each other up. And then they'd try to squirm and wiggle and work at it and see how long it took them to get out of it. And each of the boys was trying to beat the other one and trying to make him, you know, they would time it and find out who had the better knots based on how long it took for his buddy to get out of the knots. And one guy, he's like, I got you now. He found an old bed frame, queen size bed frame. And he took the boy's one wrist and tied it to one corner and the other wrist to the other corner. And his ankles, they like those corners. And the kid was stuck. And, they, and he, it was kind of a funny story, but he was talking about how he struggled and squirmed, and then he started getting mad. And he's like, I'm going to get you. And so he's like, well, I'm not going to untie you then. So he took off and left. <laughs> you're helpless. When you're all spread out like that, you can't get your hands together or your feet together. That's what the cross is. You nail each hand down, and you can't get your hands off. It's helpless. And there you hang. You may be the strongest man in the world, but you can't get your hands together, and you're helpless. That's the picture of what he saw. It was this man nailed to the cross. And he says, words of security, of assurance, of strength, today you will be with me in paradise. And the criminal saw it, that this man was a righteous man, and he knew things were not the way. Reality was not the what appeared. What they saw was not matching up with what was reality. And he realized that God doesn't always operate in the physical. That there is a spiritual realm too. That God dwells in the spiritual. And reality on the spiritual realm looks different in this case than the reality in the physical world. They could see a man helpless, nailed to a cross. God saw a man who was righteous. And this criminal recognized that you back God to the equation and all of a sudden everything changes. So it's interesting then in verse 44 that it was about the sixth hour and then darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. I don't know if you've ever tried to shut off the sun before. It doesn't shut off. The only one who can shut off the sun like a light bulb is God. God has intervened at this point. The sun was darkened. And the veil of the temple was torn in two. 
it's a, uh, I think at the time, people who knew that the veil was torn had no idea what this meant. No idea of what the significance of having the veil torn into. All they knew was that there was a big problem. But God had intervened at this point, not to save Jesus, but he's going to make a statement. He's going to show that he is here. He turned off the sun, that they would see that the power of God was present. And with all the power of God present, what he did was tear a veil. And now we looking back on it, we can see the significance. It means so much that God is no longer in a holy of holies where you have to go through sacrifices and through holy people in order to get close to God. The veil is torn. He's no longer back there. He has changed everything. When Jesus cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. He died. It wasn't that he was killed. What they would do, like that boy that was tied up to the bed frame and his friend walks away from him, they do is they would nail somebody to the cross and you just leave them hang there, you know, go get your lunch or whatever you want to eat, not gonna go nowhere. Until he dies. Jesus breathed his last. He died deliberately. They didn't put him to death and take his life away from them. He died deliberately. So whose will is being done here? He was delivered over to the people. But he speaks these words. And then he deliberately dies. And then God rips the veil in two. When the centurion saw what had happened, he glorified God, saying, Certainly this was a righteous man. The whole crowd who came together to that site, seeing what had been done, beat their breasts in return, but all his acquaintances, the women who followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. Whose will was being done? I think, as I've thought about sovereignty and looked into it, I think you know this, it's pretty common to say that the sovereignty of God means that he he commands and it is done. So whatever we do is something that he has put into motion. You know, we're going to, these people as they do the different things, it's God that has it's His will that they are doing. He has uh, uh, dictated how they're going to make their choices and so forth. That view of God's sovereignty is a very obscure view. It's a very unclear understanding of what God's sovereignty is. What we see in this chapter is these people are doing exactly what they want to do. And every choice that they make, God uses to accomplish his purpose. It's kind of like a playing chess. You get a kid and he starts playing chess. And he's playing against a chess master, and so he goes to make his first move, and the chess master says, uh-uh, move over there. So he moves over there, and then he thinks, and the chess master makes his move, and, oh, no, can't move. And so the chess master directs the kid every step of the way which way he should move his chess pieces. And then the chess master grandly beats him in the end, checkmates him. Of course he did, because he told the kid what to do the whole way through. 
That's like the first view of God's sovereignty, that God dictates to everybody what their moves are going to be, and in the end, he wins. But that's not true. That's a very obscure view of God's sovereignty. A chess master, when he plays against a kid, every move that the kid makes only aids the chess master in winning the game. Because he knows how to play. He knows how to work. You can set up your defense as best as you want, and yet he swoops in and takes your king at the end. And it's like, what in the world? It's like you're trying to set the board in your favor the best way that you want to, and when you get done, you find out it only set the path up for him to come in and win the game. That's what God's sovereignty is like. These people are making their choices. They're doing exactly what they want to do. And God has the capability to take their choices and accomplish his purpose. Their will was being done. And he was using every choice to accomplish his purpose. With that in mind, then, you come to verse 50. Behold, there was a man named Joseph, a council member, a good and just man. He had not consented to the decision. Indeed, he was from Arimathea, the city of the Jews, who himself was also waiting for the kingdom of God. This phrase, waiting for the kingdom of God, uh, was we saw that earlier in the loop. What it meant was that this was a man who didn't just do the Judaistic thing just, to, just because. It was like his heart was right before God. He was looking for a time when God... God's reign would be established. He was a true uh, man of God. That's just Joseph of Arimathea. He was waiting for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in linen and laid it in a tube where it was hanging on the rock where no one had ever lain before. That day was the preparation and the Sabbath drew near. And the woman who came with him from Galilee followed after him. They observed the tomb and how his body was laid. They returned and prepared spices and fragrant oils, and they rested on the Sabbath according to commandment. What do you think about what this man of Joseph, this man of Arimathea, what do you think about what he did? It was too little, too late. He was a man of the council. Why didn't he? How come he was so ignorant of what was taking place? Was he just out of town, or what was the problem? Why wasn't he aware? Why wasn't he there to try to why couldn't he do something to protect the Lord from going to the cross? Why didn't he go talk to Pilate earlier and say, Pilate, you know what? Let me take the man. All he did was he went afterwards and said, can I have the body? Wrapped it up in some linen and stuck in a tomb. It was too little, too late. And it wasn't, was it? We see what Joseph and Mary and Arimathea did, and we have respect for the man. And he took the body of Jesus, and he put it in the tomb. He put it in a place that was known, that everybody knew where that tomb, the women knew where that tomb was at, the chief priests knew where the tomb was at. It wasn't the body that was thrown on top of a, a burn pile where you could lose track of it. This body, it was known where it was at. We have no idea where the criminals went. We know where the body of Jesus went. We don't know today, but they did back then. It was a very highly significant thing that he did, but at the time, it looked too little, too late. The point that I'm getting at is God is able to make, to take the choices of his enemies, every choice that they make, and he's able to accomplish his purpose on a grand scale. And you've got one of his people who makes a little choice and does a little deed. It looks too little, too late. 
But if God can use his enemy's choices and make something great out of it, how much more can he take the little choices that his people make and the little things that they do that's too little, too late, but make something out of it? That's the sovereignty of God. Sometimes we feel like God is a million miles away in the things that we do. We don't even know what to do again. You see Joseph here who, he did a little something, wasn't much, but it became highly significant. God used it to accomplish his purpose. Sometimes God in his sovereignty, sometimes he directs us and tells us what to do. Sometimes he waits for us to do something. When we do something, he can take that and make it into something. It's just a matter of making a choice and doing something, I guess. Whose will was being done? The people's will was being done. And God's will was being done. Even though the people were fighting against God, he took everything they did and he accomplished something great. Our Father, we just come before you and thank you again for your son. Thank you for sending him. Thank you that... Thank you that you accomplished that great work of salvation even in the face of our hatred, in the face of our wickedness. Accomplished that great salvation that is good for even today, that today we come to you and you draw us towards yourself and you bring us the offer of salvation and you receive us when we trust in the Lord. Even today, we thank you for what he accomplished there on the cross. We ask that you would encourage our hearts in him and bless us. In Jesus' name, amen.